Coming to you live, this is a special ReachMD CME broadcast. We'll be discussing evidence-based best practices in the management and treatment of overactive bladder, or OAB. Now, let's tune in to our live broadcast titled, Treatment of OAB and the Managed Care Professional, Balancing the Double-Edged Sword, which is provided by Prova Education and is supported by an independent educational grant from Eurovance Sciences Incorporated. Welcome to Treatment of Overactive Bladder, OAB, and the Managed Care Professional, Balancing the Double-Edged Sword. I'm David Staskin. I'm an Associate Professor of Urology at Tufts University School of Medicine in Boston. And joining me today is Roger Demikowski, who's a Professor of Urology, Surgery, and Gynecology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. These are the disclosures. As you can see, both Dr. Demikowski and I have a great familiarity, both as consultants and as uh, investigators in the overactive bladder field. Our learning objectives, identify strategies for screening patients who are likely to have overactive bladder, discuss tactics for communicating with older patients about symptoms of OAB, incorporate patient preferences into the treatment of the condition, and compare the risks and benefits of treatment options for overactive bladder. First, the definition. Overactive bladder is urinary urgency, usually accompanied by frequency and nocturia, with or without urgency urinary incontinence, in the absence of urinary tract infection or other pathology. I'll go to you just for a second here, uh, Raj, and uh, people talk about the presence or absence of urge urinary incontinence within the syndrome, and it sort of divides it a little bit into wet and dry. Could you just explain that for a moment? Sure, David. As we'll see uh, uh, very soon, this is a huge population. We actually think that uh, the wet population and actually the patients who have all components that you just mentioned probably is actually the smaller percentage of a population that also includes what's considered OAB dry, overactive bladder dry, which is just the urinary urgency and frequency. Um, there's sort of a natural dichotomization of symptoms uh, uh, that uh, is produced by that sort of artificial categorization. But the, suffice it to say that incontinence is often the thing that drives people into the office uh, initially for care, and um, urgency and frequency is often that which is most disruptive for patients uh, sort of globally, especially those patients in the workforce. Well, I find that a lot of times, if you start to look at quote unquote misdiagnosis, uh, a lot of patients are diagnosed by the idea of the fact that they might have a urinary tract infection. Certainly if I was a pharmacist and I was seeing somebody come in, constantly with frequency and some urgency with or without leakage, and they were constantly on antibiotics, I'd wonder whether the possibility that they actually have OAB is the, uh, is the truth here. No, totally agree. And often, uh, as, as our managed care pharmacists will tell us, these symptoms get enfolded into patients with urinary tract infection. And obviously, as we'll see, one of the primary 
segregating uh, uh, diagnostic issues is to separate this from urinary tract infection. And as we both know, unfortunately, many patients present with both, and that makes the overall therapeutic paradigm a little bit more complicated. The other thing we encounter is that a lot of patients experience their symptoms uh, after a long history of urinary tract infections and tend to expect treatment for urinary tract infection, even when that is not the underlying circumstance for their symptoms. I'd say the other differentiator here would be urgency, frequency, and pain, which is commonly referred to as pelvic pain syndrome or the more classic term, interstitial cystitis. A urinalysis should separate out the uh, urinary tract infection group, but I think it's the pain that separates out the quote-unquote cystitis, interstitial cystitis group. Yeah, David, you know, I, I think you're right that the one proviso is that some people perceive urinary urgency actually as a uh, discomfort or even a pain syndrome, and actually doing some patient-centered research has really identified that patients really describe urgency in a variety of ways, and so what may be urinary urgency for you is not for me, and so again, part of our due diligence is to really try to get to the root kernel of, of what is the initiating factor for that particular symptom. Yes, you know, I, I agree with you on that because some people do define urgency as this sudden, compelling need to pass urine. Okay, urgency, which is a good segue to the right hand side of the slide, as opposed to uh, a dimmer switch where as their bladder fills, they become more and more uncomfortable, which I think is more consistent with the cystitis group. I really think this is a, a primary, we're both urologists, but I do really think this is a primary care disease. I'm not sure that primary care physicians in their training uh, spend enough time understanding the lower urinary tract in general, but I, this is really something that could really be, again, addressed at the primary care level and not necessarily referred to a urologist. Totally agree with you, David, and we both have uh, many colleagues in the primary care realm who actually recognize this as being a very significant contributing factor to the overall uh, comorbidities that their patient populations present with. It's just the uh, I, I, what I've experienced is there's sort of a limit to what uh, PCPs uh, can handle just given time constraints, but the importance of understanding urinary conditions uh, both OAB and, for that matter, incontinence and urinary tract infection really is critical to best manage these po populations on a long-term basis. Excellent. Let's use the next slide to just differentiate the incontinent group. And so this, this is called spectrum of overactive bladder, but the orange circle is stress incontinence, cough, laugh, sneeze, as opposed to urgency, frequency, and then uninhibited bladder contraction, which is overactive bladder. And you can see that overlap in mixed. Many uh, female patients with stress incontinence, as you can see, almost 50% of them will have a component of frequency and urgency. I think it's an important differentiator, uh, an underactive outlet, cough, laugh, sneeze, lift, losing urine because the, the uh, sphincteric me mechanism is not uh, competent versus the overactive bladder patient is extremely important. And then understanding that there's a mixed group here, because a lot of times the patients will be losing urine, especially if it's in large amounts. And it's a little bit easier to understand them as urge patients. 
there are there is data out there, multiple papers that say that just trying to get this on history alone is sometimes difficult, and uh, sometimes empirically treating people for urge and seeing if they get better is the right way to go. What do you think? David, I absolutely agree with you. Patients, uh, unfortunately, uh, have great difficulty segregating these symptoms, and so it becomes very problematic. And so I have no issues with a, a presumptive trial to try to, if you will, unmask the bladder storage versus, as you mentioned, the bladder outlet symptoms. Uh, we have uh, uh, analyzed a great many types of questionnaires, and, and the bottom line is patients it's very difficult for a patient who perhaps is just encountering uh, a formal formalistic determination of what's going on with them by a practitioner to to really be able to enunciate what exactly is the is the causation for their symptoms. And so it's not uncommon, as we both know, to have patients complain that I'm losing urine all the time, or I'm going to the bathroom all the time, and I leak. And uh, you, uh, as you mentioned, we try to give various instigating questions, but that may be very difficult for some individuals. So again. Uh, uh, I think uh, one of the important things that you're touching on, David, is the importance of the understanding of these syndromes and the overlap, overlapping nature of these symptomatic syndromes, which aren't explicit diagnoses per se. We're treating a, a syndrome or a grouping of symptoms, uh, again, with the, the best methods that we have, which are often uh, uh, both behavioral therapy and pharmacologically related. Let's just move on for a second. OAB bothersome data from uh, EpiLutz. And this is a Karen Coyne study from, uh, I believe, uh, 2000 and, uh, around 2010. And this, is a, this certainly shows that there's bother both in male and female patients and male patients, especially as they get older. Do you think that this is valid data? Again, 13 years later, Roger, would you, would you look at this the same way? Yeah, for, first and foremost, David, we, we sort of um, euphemistically use this term bother, and I think it's important for our audience to understand we're using the term bother as sort of life disruption, a, a real social problem for individuals. When you talk to patients about what we sort of categorize perhaps artifactually as bother, it's really life disruption. I mean, how badly is your life disrupted? And so we've gotten better at asking those questions, obviously, and those questions really do delineate the fact that bother is experienced by both genders associated with these storage symptoms to a fairly dramatic uh, degree. And again, as we've gotten better at asking the question, I think we're starting to discover more patients. And the best I guess answer to your query, David, about uh, this issue with men is uh, as we've had a, and developed a greater appreciation for these symptoms being in men, we've gotten better at asking about these symptoms in men. And therefore, we're now seeing increasing incidences of the reporting of stored symptoms, OAB symptoms in men that, again, as you mentioned, has historically been categorized as simply BPH. The interesting thing from a managed care point of view or from a prescribing point of view is if someone comes in and there's either a step therapy or an algorithmic approach to trying to diagnose them and they they go down the wrong pathway, but that's just as costly to both them personally as far as their symptoms are concerned and the healthcare system, because they may or may not come back in and be re-diagnosed properly. Agree totally, David. I, I think that uh, um, the, this uh, issue about level of bother and when patients 
sort of determine they've reached the the maximal amount that they're interested in either being evaluated or treated really then does come down to their subjective perception of, again, their life disruption and, and sort of what they expect out of therapy. And one of the most important things we can consider as we move forward, and we'll be discussing this momentarily, is that this is a chronic process. And our goal is symptomatic control, not necessarily cure. Cure is very difficult to attain um, because this, again, like so many of the chronic conditions we deal with, especially in the managed care setting, uh, is likely to be a lifelong event with relative exacerbations and perhaps periods of less bother. But again, the patient, um, the individual suffering these symptoms uh, is likely to be a return um, uh, evalu uh, return for evaluation on a frequent basis due to relative symptomatic exacerbations. And I agree with you because returning, depending on bother and depending on their response to therapy, generates more office visits for the same condition which they're not being treated for properly. So in 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 essence, you're really creating a an office visit problem for primary care physicians who really don't want to see people back every three weeks, every four weeks to reassess their condition. Where in a urologist's office, where there's a little bit more intensive treatment and focus on these specific symptoms, I think the bar gets lowered just a little bit. At what point, Roger? can you really differentiate other than bother and patient desire when someone comes in with these symptoms to not just, uh, you, you don't want to see other physicians when the patient has a quality of life condition, just be happy that the patient's not complaining anymore. You'd really like to resolve this. And there are so many treatments out there right now where the patient can be directed properly. But how do you, I mean, in your office, it's easier to deal with this as a urologist and also with other caregivers who, who work with you in order to do it. But I think it's a little bit of a problem in the community where there's multiple conditions that uh, these people are coming in with. There's multiple medications and multiple comorbidities. Well, David, pertinent to exactly what you're driving to, and, and, and again, uh, with due diligence for our population of interest that's listening to this discussion today, uh, in a managed care population, we uh, we use the term OAB uh, perhaps a little bit flippantly because as David and I will both tell you, OAB is associated with both an idiopathic presentation, in other words, no defined causation and a non-idiopathic uh, 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 presentation, which is often a neurogenic associated complications. So in other words, we have neurogenic OAB associated with multiple sclerosis and spinal cord injury. And for that matter, with stroke and other central nervous system uh, issues. And it's my firm belief that, especially as we look at our aging population, we use the term idiopathic OAB, that we may actually have in the back of our mind at least a need to exclude potentially some developing central nervous system process. And of course, the most common thing, obviously, is uh, um, uh, senile uh, or, or pre-senile dementias, as well as Alzheimer's disease, and th some of the considerations that are associated with that. And th that population tends to have a very high rate of OAB-like symptoms. And in fact, I have, um, uh, have several patients who fall into the category of cognitive dysfunction 
who are profoundly bothered by OAB and have been shown subsequently to have uh, central nervous system white matter disease. Uh, that's uh, very problematic for them and also for us because, again, the way the uh, circuitry of the central nervous system manages this symptomatology is um, significantly disrupted by uh, especially frontal and prefrontal cortical um, uh, uh, pathology, including that associated with dementia. So, uh, again, I look for things such as um, short-term memory deficit and uh, and cognitive issues that may be an indicative of an undiagnosed um, uh, cognitive dysfunction, perhaps representative of dementia, as a primary etiology in, in the population of interest for today's discussion. And I'll just add one more thing there uh, before we move on. I find that the sensitivity to the fact of the comorbidities and medications that the patient is already on really make this a much more challenging problem than your 30 or 40 or 50-year-old patient, again, on fewer medications and with fewer problems, who then goes ahead and just requires some medication, maybe just for a short period of time to break the cycle or on and off when the symptoms are bothering them. And we'll get into the into the drug-drug uh, interactions and some of the comorbidities bringing in these symptoms. Uh, health burden, we talked about this a little bit, the quality of life and the economics. Do you have anything that you want to highlight there, Raj? Yeah, I think one thing to think about is sleep dysfunction and, again, the impact of associated sleep dysfunction, sleep disturbance, rather, from urinary symptoms uh, when added to everything else associated with a comorbidity presentation. Uh, we we clearly are becoming much more sensitized to the importance of sleep hygiene and sleep disruption in terms of contribution to uh, underlying comorbidities and even perhaps causation for them. Typical patient profile. So we've discussed the symptoms, frequency, urgency, nocturia, with or without incontinence. We may or may not see in the urology office as specialists. I mean, we will see patients who may have had prior treatment on one or more medications or have tried some of the behavioral things that are recommended. Their medical history. My issue usually is that no one can memorize an entire list of everything that affects the bladder. But if people think about this as things that affect fluid intake and output, th that's a very, very easy way to start to look at the, some of the differentials. I've had a lot of patients referred by very good internists whose real problem with nocturious poor sugar control. I've had a lot of patients referred by cardiologists who, if you press their ankles, even at 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, have significant peripheral edema, which is probably contributing to some of their symptoms. Uh, the medications they use when, when or when they don't uh, take a uh, diuretic or some other medication, which may affect uh, their management of fluid. And why don't you talk a little bit here uh, about how you do the sort of a basic workup, Roger, that allows you to take both the history and what I've talked about, and also some of the other things into consideration. Yeah, David, I mean, I think you mentioned a lot of the historical and social historical aspects that we look for in the presentation. The physical exam itself is really focused on the abdomen, but a, a peripheral extremity exam is very important for the reasons David suggested. Uh, I think it's really critical to at least uh, have a perception of what vaginal health is in, in women and also the size of the prostate in males. So obviously there are, there are the components of vaginal and prostatic examination uh, that are gender specific, that are 
are probably at least of consideration during the initial evaluation. Those are really critical aspects to help uh, segregate things, if you will, uh, in terms of moving you in a specific direction. One other thing I'd like to make a point about, David, with the recent addition of a whole class of um, diabetic medications that actually cause patients to actually spill sugar into their urine as a way of managing sugar control, we're actually seeing uh, actually increasing frequency associated with that because, again, there is an obligate diuresis. So we historically always looked at um, uh, glycosuria as being a manifestation of poorly controlled diabetes, but now it also is a manifestation of diabetic control, just a consideration. Excellent, excellent. That's an excellent point. Let's talk a little bit about uh, pathophysiology. I, I think that the issue here, we've talked about it, is a storing, which means the bladder relaxes and holds urine and the outlet stays closed, and emptying, the bladder contracts and the outlet opens without obstruction. So what we're really dealing here, here with is normoactive bladder as opposed to overactive bladder and a normoactive outlet as opposed to an underactive outlet with the overactive bladder, of course, being our urge symptoms and our underactive outlet being the cough, laugh, sneeze. Importantly, the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems control this sympathetic stimulation will relax the bladder dome, as you might say some parasympathetic blockade might. And then, of course, the opposite symptoms where uh, you're looking at the outlet where an alpha blocker is used to open up the uh, bladder outlet. And this actually becomes much more interesting and much more complex as one understands the amount of medications that have both sympathetic and parasympathetic uh, mechanisms of action, and the fact that they probably are having some effect on the lower urinary tract. Interestingly enough, though, the bladder seems to have a little bit of reserve for being able to empty completely. W where do you think the biggest issue here is now, uh, Roger, with the, with the beta-3 agonists, we're relaxing the bladder, but with very little systemic beta-1 effect on blood pressure and pulse. And with the parasympathetics, we're causing the parasympathetic symptoms, dry mouth, blurry vision, constipation. And we may or may not be getting uh, the same uh, equivalent response to them as we are with the beta-3s. Where do you think we are? Well, I, I think we uh, clearly, uh, I find that the beta uh, agonist agents, the beta-3s, are much more tolerable in general for especially our older population. I am becoming very concerned about long-term anti-muscarinic exposure based upon some recent data. Uh, and also, especially in a pre-selected uh, elderly population or older age population that may already be on the verge of or experiencing early cognitive dysfunction. And we know fairly clearly that the anti-muscarinics, at least some of them, get, uh, are able to gain access uh, through the blood-brain barrier to the central nervous system and actually compound cognitive dysfunction. Excellent. This uh, talks about muscarinic receptors and where they're uh, seen uh, throughout the body. The uh, biggest issue for uh, bladder medications, which is at the bottom, are that they work through blockade of uh, M2 and M3. Some of the issues here are interesting because a lot of the anticholinergic medications will have uh, M1 effect, 
So you see that cross-reactivity with the brain. You can see the blurry vision from M3. You can see the dry mouth from M3. You can see effects on pulse rate from uh, M2. And you can see effects on constipation through M3. None of these things are that simple. And it is interesting to look, though, and see the potential interactions at multiple levels. And it's very, very clear where we're getting these anti-muscarinic side effects. I'd have to agree with you on uh, permeability of the brain. And we can start talking about tertiary means and quaternary means and PGP pumps. And we've sort of been through that while we're really taking a deep dive into the uh, anti-muscarinics. But we seem to be avoiding that when we're using the beta-3 agents. So sympathetic regulation of the bladder, uh, bladder storage, the, uh, there's a sympathetic norepinephrine uh, release to the uh, bladder dome. The uh, beta-3 receptors, 97% of the beta receptors in the bladder dome are uh, beta-3. And so you get uh, relaxation of the uh, stimulation of relaxation in the bladder dome. And again, the alpha receptor uh, is responsible for closing of the outlet. So you can see that the sympathetic nervous system is really turned on during storage. And the parasympathetic regulation. And again, parasympathetics turn off the sympathetics and then cause uh, contraction through M2 and M3. Uh, so you can see the the logic of using these mechanisms for controlling you know, the lower urinary tract. And the lower urinary tract, obviously, through the cholinergics and through the adrenergics, are utilizing these uh, medications that we've discussed. Raj, one of the things that I'd be interested in hearing you comment on, and, and again, the audience may be more sophisticated than others we may talk to about pharmacology, but it appears that a, a real major way for these uh, medications to work is on afferents and not efferents. It may be a reason why we don't see with the anti-muscarinics as much of a concern about urinary retention. We shouldn't see it with the beta-3 hardly at all. Where are we? It doesn't hit FDA labeling. FDA labeling is really a very motor-oriented uh, approach to this. Scientifically, and trying to work this into how you treat patients clinically, or at least uh, appreciate this, where are you now? Well, obviously, um, very recently, the um, regulatory agency of the United States, the FDA, has recognized uh, the symptom of urgency, the importance of us interacting with that symptom and our ability to measure that symptom. And so uh, we now have medications that actually are described as managing what you described and, and referred to as a sensory aspect of bladder function, which our best correlate symptomatically for uh, sensory bladder activity is urgency. And so we are now better at uh, identifying that and also uh, regulating and modulating treatment for that. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, Vibegron, a beta-3, was the, although all overactive bladder medicines mentioned urgency because it's part of the symptom complex, it was the first one to actually show urge improvement actually in the labeling. And again, that, that, that's a first for overactive bladder medications. Let's look at strategies for screening uh, patients. We've talked about the symptoms, so I don't think that we have to spend a lot of time other than some of the ideas about uh, this OAB the, and the patient-clinician uh, disconnection. And obviously, I think that 
clinicians, as you mentioned, will have some time limitations, but also do you think people at the primary care level are also sort of affected by a knowledge ability here only because they really haven't been uh, educated? And uh, the patient gaps, we always think of people as being um, embarrassed and don't ask, don't tell, and the doctor doesn't ask. And but but I also think that the office visit itself is so rushed that people and they're so concerned with treatable conditions that you can measure, like a like a blood sugar or a coag or something else, that they don't really get down to all the quality of life conditions unless the patient pushes. So where's the right balance there? Yeah, you know, David, it, it's hard. I mean, it's hard for all of us now with the with the way that we have time pressures. I, I think sort of a, a active listening, uh, regulated balance with at least some time for the patient to respond to, do you, is there anything else? Or what, what's really bothering you today? Or do you have any new things that have arisen since the last time we saw you? And at least some, uh, albeit shortened period of time for the patient to at least bring it forward. When we ask patients about this, they'll often say the doctor never asked or the doctor didn't seem to have time. And I guess some of it is incumbent upon us to try to at best strike a balance, which is increasingly becoming difficult due to the pressures that all of us are under. I, I, I think one of the interesting things is the disconnect between the amount of paperwork a patient is filling out about every possible symptom they have uh, as they come into the office and the disconnect of not talking about a lot of them where the check marks are yes. So I'd have to agree with you on that. It, it's Again, it's certainly easier in my practice. I only treat patients with voiding dysfunction, but even depending on who comes into the office and what they're coming in for, uh, there's a lot of times where I might not ask all the all the questions, even in an atmosphere that's a little bit simpler than that. And so they say screening begins with a a discussion, and and I think you and I uh, agree with that, and 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 with the importance of 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 asking these patients the right question. And maybe in a primary care office, this screening really needs to be done by not by the physician themselves, but some of the things that are important to the patient need need to be screened out by an assistant within the uh, within their care structure. What do you think? Totally agree. I think that the even the ability to repeat or have a circumstance where they have the chance to have a repetitive questioning and and the use of uh, extenders, um, uh, nurse practitioners, uh, physicians assistants has uh, I found to be very helpful uh, in uh, in terms of really identifying perhaps things that don't come forward in the initial office evaluation with the provider. Yeah, I think the extenders are actually interested in helping with these quality of life conditions. And uh, given a forum and some time to interact with the patient and some knowledge about what treatment things are available is extremely important, especially for people who are trying to increase care in this area. I always say the, uh, the physician extenders for this type of a condition are very important. There's, we're going to before we move on. Let's talk. Do you do uh, have specific things for? elderly here or talking about uh, these symptoms with elderly patients. I usually find the elderly patients are uh, very, very specific in my office as a urologist about uh, urinary symptoms. That's why they're there and they know they're there. So I don't really have to tease this out. Perhaps it's different in primary care. 
Yeah, I, su I suspect it is, David. But but uh, and you're right. The elderly probably are a little bit more focused on it, perhaps because of duration of their symptoms. Um, so the, the, really, the issues more with the elderly are the comorbidities, and again, the cognitive issues, which we discussed previously, and making sure we're hearing those. So we again, again, we've we've talked about uh, uh, screening. We've talked about the fact that sort of urgency is a core symptom. Pointed out that the FDA is now recognizing this. I think that as you start to realize urgency drives getting up at night, urgency drives going to the bathroom frequency, and urgency happens before an urgent continence episode. So obviously this term, even though the uh, symptom itself is oft difficult to define, uh, is extremely important. And looking at these symptoms from the point of view of what are the definitions, strong desire to avoid, leaking after this strong urge to go, losing urine, usually for urge incontinence in a volume greater than stress incontinence, frequency more than eight times per day that people are going to the bathroom and waking to urinate. And obviously that is may be normal based on diurnal excretion patterns as you get older, but many patients are bothered by, uh, certainly by getting up two or more times to void. Do, do you find this for the nocturia as a driver in the office uh, in your practice, Raj? Yeah, no, nocturia obviously is, as you mentioned previously, I find to be a very strong driver, especially in this population. And you eloquently described the difference between simply one, one episode per night and what it can do to your sleep cycle disruption. The important thing about sleep cycle disruption especially in this population, is even though it's a chicken or the egg thing, and did you wake up because your bladder was full, or did you wake up because you, uh, the cat kicked over the canary or something, There, there are there's also other associated and attendant issues with sleeping at night, not the least of which, as we both know, is obstructive sleep apnea in this population, and also, unfortunately, sleep cycle changes that occur uh, as a natural and attendant um, part of the aging process. Let's talk a minute about guidelines, Roger. This is a sort of a complicated slide, but maybe you can sort of simplify uh, what what's really going on here, what the AUA or SUFU's intentions are. Sure, David. Um, the guidelines really set the, if you will, the foundation for good care. Remember, they're not standards, but they're, they, they basically say what you should do in the treatment and evaluation of a patient. And the guidelines as demonstrated in this relatively complicated schematic, which we'll break down in subsequent slides, basically creates the environment and, and the flow pattern, if you will, through the sort of the complete assessment and then uh, workup of a patient. And so essentially, we've already talked about the diagnostic and key critical aspects. Uh, however, when we go to the sort of deciding where we are in therapy, and again, the therapy is a stepwise therapy between uh, essentially behavioral therapies, followed by then therapies related to pharmacology, then related to therapies for patients that we call refractory, and we'll discuss what that all is, is a key and critical point. And that point is the assessment, assessment of patient preferences. And so it's specified here, and as you'll see in the next slide, patient preferences are key and critical for determining where we stop with therapy because patients may wish to try behavioral therapy, but they also decide that they're willing to um, ingest medications. And again, the ingestion of medications may be long-term. Um, and then you proceed on to third and fourth line therapy. Now, as we look at behavioral therapies, uh, which are really the first line and still remain defined as the first line, 
And they include a variety of strategies, including toilet mapping, fluid restriction. Um, uh, these are all first-line therapies that the patient may uh, wish to undertake. Unfortunately, many times patients come to us already having tried this, and there is some resistance to relying solely on these therapies as the only modality for treatment. Therefore, we often in clinical practice will offer the behavioral therapy, but also because the patients have tried it, go to second-line treatments, which are pharmacologic treatments. And as David mentioned previously, we have two broad choices of therapy, the oral antimuscarinic or the oral beta-3 adrenoreceptor agonists. All of these medications are affected by delivery types, especially the antimuscarinics in terms of having immediate and extended release formulations. There are also some transdermal formulations for the uh, for a specific type of the antimuscarinic. Uh, and again, the question is, do, do they provide adequate symptomatic control? So as we look at adequate symptomatic, um, uh, symptomatic control, we often in this population will consider combination therapy. So in males, we'll consider an adrenoreceptor uh, antagonist uh, for the outlet in a man with BPH, as well as an agonist for control of bladder storage. And so it's not uncommon to see patients on that combination. Uh, similarly, uh, patients uh, may be prescribed both an antimuscarinic and a beta-3 in the case of a, a woman with these symptoms to try to amplify therapy in terms of bladder control. There are some explicit uh, restrictions on the use of antimuscarinics, and those are for patients with narrow angle glaucoma and also for patients with impaired colonic or gastric emptying. It's very important to consider those. But we as physicians also have to be uh, very focused on adverse events which can preclude or disrupt patient compliance with therapy, such as dry mouth or constipation. So it's really critical that these discussions occur before embarking on therapy. Now, as we consider uh, antimuscarinics, we uh, also have to be aware of their other anticholinergic uh, uh, properties. And again, we've stressed how important that is in the frail, overactive bladder patients. Um, so it's really, again, a balance of how much we give orally dependent upon patient responsiveness, patient adverse event uh, profile, and patient risk. And patient risk is something that's really rising to the fore with this concern regarding central nervous system um, uh, concerns related to overexposure to antimuscarinics. Uh, we do have a population uh, that is refractory to both behavioral and pharmacologic therapy, and that is when uh, the uh, PCP and, and the uh, uh, long-term care physician or provider should consider referral to a specialist who focuses in on these therapies. And given that this is um, uh, a uh, program mainly focused for you, we'll just very briefly talk about third and fourth line therapies. Uh, third line therapies include uh, uh, percutaneous tibial neurostimulation and neuromodulation, uh, both of which attempt to modify the urinary tract either with direct injection of neurotoxin, botulinum toxin into the bladder, or some form of electrical stimulation delivered either uh, at the level of the ankle, percutaneous tibial neural stimulation, or patients who uh, uh, receive implantable neurostimulation with a device uh, with some of the pacemaking devices that are available. As we also consider sacral neuromodulation, it's important to remember that these, these therapies are really for refractory patients who, uh, for whatever reason, can't uh, receive benefit from combination behavioral and oral therapy or have had side events with oral therapy that precludes their long-term uh, utilization of same. So sacral neuromodulation, again, is defined for this specific population. 
Another type of therapy that is defined for the refractory population are, is the uh, PTNS, percutaneous tibial stimulation. And again, these therapies may be used in isolation or they may be used in concert with associated behavioral and oral therapy in the patients who need to continue those therapies long-term. Fourth-line therapies uh, include basically bladder diversion, some uh, modification of bladder storage, either with a segment of intestine, an augmentation cystoplasty, or urinary diversion, obviously when you've, you've given up the ghost, so to speak, and there's no other therapies left. There are additional treatments that are not certainly not in the patient's best interest, uh, including indwelling catheters of a variety of types, uh, which have some risks and benefits associated with them that we have to keep in mind. David, let me give this back to you for pharmacologic treatment. Let's talk a little bit about uh, pharmacologic therapy. The EMPOWER study was uh, done looking at a beta-3 agent, Vibegron, uh, and it also used an active comparator. And it looked at the symptoms as co-primary and secondary uh, endpoints that we've talked about uh, during this presentation, frequency, urgency, uh, nocturia, uh, and your and urge urinary incontinence. And th the beta threes really did perform extremely well here. This is the average daily incontinence episodes looking at a control that's been uh, used an antimuscarinic in the population uh, versus placebo. And you can see that it was a very robust response. In fact, for every data point, regardless of age and regardless of the time it was measured, the uh, Vibegron uh, outperformed the, uh, the active control anti-muscarinic uh, in this study. It also reduced daily micturitions with the same robust response, again, uh, compared to the active control and also compared to placebo. And it also showed the same reductions in urinary urgency at, at 12 weeks. And again, these were uh, shown to, per, uh, to persist for the uh, nine-month follow-up over one year, volume voided, uh, which is uh, which I think is an important thing to look at, meaning if you're not increasing the amount of urine a patient holds, it's hard to understand what the pharmacologic response is. And again, uh, a very nice response. And again, compared to either placebo and the patient's baseline or the active control. Key subpopulations showed the same thing. You always want to know this. Do we see it in males as well as females? Do you do see it in over 65, over 75, and over 85, which there are other subcuts which we're not showing, which were true in patients with prior anticholinergic use or prior beta-3 use? So very, very interesting response. And again, a very, very robust response both compared to placebo and compared to tolterity. As you can see here, the safety and tolerability profile, again, are good. You are not seeing the anti-muscarinic effects. More importantly, with Vibegron, you are not seeing the beta-1 effect. It's a beta-3 agonist, not a beta-1. It's very strong with uh, respect to that ratio of beta-3 to beta-1. So you're not seeing hypertension. You're not seeing, uh, again, blood pressure uh, increased or uh, tachycardia. Empower conclusions, uh, Vibegron, which we have described as a beta-3 agonist, 
uh, provided highly statistically significant improvements in OAB symptoms, uh, which we've uh, discussed and uh, shown graphically. It had rapid and significant onset of action by week two, maintained through week 12, and through the follow-up one-year uh, study. The efficacy in key subpopulations was seen, which we all think is important, and the vibegron was well-tolerated with a favorable safety profile, minimal uh, beta-1 uh, activity. In fact, uh, none. There's no hypertension or tachycardia mentioned in the package insert. Uh, and uh, no anti-muscarinic symptoms, basically because we're not dealing with an anti-cholinergic agent. Let's talk about another agent now. It's a beta-3 agonist, uh, Mirabegron. And there was a study uh, specifically done to look at the uh, safety in the elderly. The study's name was Pillar. Uh, it was using uh, Mirabegron in a flexible dosing regimen. And the uh, change in baseline for micturitions and incontinence episodes was followed as uh, looking at the efficacy. But in addition to that, there were cognitive studies done with uh, these patients over 65. And again, we did not see any uh, significant cognitive problems. As you can see, similar to Vibegron, you do not see anti-muscarinic effects. You uh, do not see in this specific uh, trial a problem with uh, tachycardia or hypertension, but of note, uh, Vibegron, which also is a beta-3, does have a mention in the uh, label about hypertension and about the need to check blood pressure and to start at its lower dose and then to uptitrate the patients. All right, David, let's bring this home. So we've talked a lot about the importance of managing this condition in patients. So let's look at a, a specific case and, and, and sort of get your sense about how, how you would manage this. So um, this is a, a woman who's 68, and she, her main complaint is urinary symptoms. Uh, she does elucidate to you that she experiences urinary incontinence uh, and has done so for approximately two years. She has daytime frequency 10 times, nocturia times three, and nocturia, as we've uh, previously mentioned, is extremely disruptive. She uses at least two pads a day. She's already tried fluid restrictions, and, and she is actively toilet mapping. Uh, interestingly, she does have a past medical history of some mild CHF and depression, and her chronic conditions currently are controlled with a diuretic and an antidepressant. When considering her family history, there is a pre-existent history of cognitive dysfunction in her mother associated with Alzheimer's disease, um, and her father had uh, ASCVD and has um, uh, expired from that condition. She is a banker. She's actively employed. She's a non-smoker. Uh, you do your analysis as part of your initial screen, and uh, it's negative, and her post-void residual is 75. What other information would you like? I think uh, I think that actually the hi the history is pretty good and 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 uh, very complete. You can see in this that you there are reasons to uh, favor the uh, beta threes over the anti-muscarinic agents due to the uh, probably the patient's concern. I'm sure she's aware of cognitive issues in her parents. She is on medications, which we mentioned before, uh, could be. Uh, uh, an issue and a concern uh, based on what they are. Uh, you can choose a beta-3 like Vibegron in a patient like this that does not have uh, any interaction with uh, 2D6, which would uh, probably be the uh, 
enzyme which uh, metabolizes her her uh, her antidepressant. I think there's a lot of reasons here to go directly to a beta three agent in this patient. And and the reason I say that is is that in a step therapy program or in some reason why you'd have to uh, uh, prescribe an antimuscarinic for this woman, you'd probably uh, you'd probably be giving her something that she didn't want and probably wasn't best for her in order to get to the type of medication that you'd prefer. Well, indeed, David, as we as we go on with this case, what we see in additional information, she's already seen a PCP. She tried a medication, presumably some um, member of the antimuscarinic class due to that it caused constipation. Um, and that she is uh, lives alone and is currently self-sufficient, but she does uh, uh, offer that she is somewhat bothered by some uh, perception of short-term memory issues. So as we move forward with this individual, we, we obviously have the guideline-based therapeutic discussion uh, about behavioral therapy, which she's already doing. Physiotherapy, she's uh, basically done physical therapy in her 30s. Um, she doesn't really think that much more pelvic floor stimulation is going to help. Um, and, and she's already researched cognitive dysfunction and, and really can't agree to any impact on mentation. So to your point, I think this is clearly a directive uh, circumstance where we would be very selective in our choice of uh, medication beta-3 and would actually, and oftentimes, and as our uh, chronic care colleagues would endorse, I believe, uh, this is a type of patient that we would actually have to probably um, actively impact with the pharmacy benefit manager, the the issue about step therapy and the requirement to try antimuscarinics first, because that's clearly not in the best interest of this patient and is actually going to put this patient at risk. So I totally agree with your management of this patient. David, I'd just like to say this has been a, a great program. I, I uh, as usual, I, I very much appreciate your insights and uh, your um, uh, ability to uh, manage the, the conversation. And uh, I hope that uh, uh, this has helped our audience in terms of understanding a complex condition um, and the management of that condition. Thank you very much. Thank you, Roger. And stay tuned for our question and answer portion of the program. I hope you enjoyed the uh, more didactic part of the program. Of course, I, I think the most important part is getting your feedback through your questions. So we have some interesting questions here and I'll throw I'll read the first one and throw it out to Roger. Can you have OAB without urgency since interesting since urgency is sort of the core symptom? I guess you'd be left with frequency and incontinence. If so, what signs symptoms should you think about whether it's OAB or something else, or do you still fall within the same paradigm, Raj? So thanks, David. So uh, it's a really good question. So the, as David implied, the, the definitional uh, concept of OAB is urgency, frequency, and urgent incontinence, and that's sort of what we march with. Now, there is a concept of urgency and frequency only, which is OAB dry, but again, those the, both of them contain the core element of urgency. What we've seen, though, is that there are a group of individuals who um, lose their uh, some aspect of their bladder sensory activity. And so, in fact, you can have OAB that is urge silent and just have frequency and incontinence. And the most common symptoms associated with that are actually spontaneous loss of urine. Patients will come in and say, I lose urine spontaneously. I have no idea what's happening. And if you study them, they are indeed having bladder overactivity. 
We think there is probably a central nervous system defect, and this is actually not an unusual finding in people with um, pre-senile and actually senile dementias and cognitive dysfunction. So it's a very interesting uh, aspect of the aging bladder. Thank you, David. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that, Roger. And the interesting thing about that is that almost falls into the area of neurogenic bladder because it's sensory neurogenic bladder, which by the again, by the strictest definition of OAB is not OAB anymore because now it's neurogenic bladder. But I, I thought your answer was great. Uh, in a patient with urgency is the predominant symptom. What do you prefer to use? An anti-muscarinic or a beta-3 uh, uh, agonist? And I think the answer here really comes down to the same issues we talked about, about when you'd use a beta-3 and when you'd use an anti-muscarinic. So I don't think urgency specifically as a symptom or frequency or incontinence for that matter, or the degrees would have me use uh, one uh, drug class more than another. I think I'd be more focused on the uh, the uh, AEs and the contraindications to patients using an anti-muscarinic. Do you agree with that, Raj? Absolutely, David. Well, well said. All right. And what type of patient would you not use an anti-muscarinic agent? And I'll throw that to you. Well, certainly, um, anti-muscarinic agents are associated with side effects, we all know. So if a person has significant dry eyes, dry mouth syndrome, what we used to call sicka syndrome, I would be very concerned about giving that patient anticholinergics or anti-muscarinics. Similarly to people prone to constipation, you'll certainly almost uh, certainly exacerbate their symptomatology. I think the big area now that we're concerned about, obviously, are those patients with pre-existing cognitive dysfunction and the known side effects, at least of some of the anti-muscarinic class, the tertiary amines and their ability to get across the blood-brain barrier and to instigate unfortunately, uh, cognitive dysfunction that is measurable. And there is some evidence now to suggest that those patients actually, if kept on chronic anticholinergic anti-muscarinic therapy, actually accelerate the development into uh, uh, cognitive dysfunctions inclusive of dementia. Thank you, David. Assuming somebody will tolerate an anti-muscarinic or you've started them on a beta-3 and reached maximum dose, when do you consider patients refractory, Roger, where you might go on to combination therapy? You know, David, we've sort of gone through an evolution on this. I think in days gone by, you know, you and I have talked about keeping patients on for several months, and certainly that was an accepted strategy. I think now we're sort of telescoping therapy because of patient frustration and, and certainly from a cost-benefit standpoint. So I think the, 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 the back of the envelope rule now is one month on appropriate dosing without effect or without a beneficial uh, perce perception of effect by the patient is usually enough to push, uh, push us into next steps for therapy if the patient is uh, uh, interested in that. The only, other the only other sidebar to that is obviously the patient uh, experiences a relatively rapid onset of some anticholinergic side effect, which is a tolerability issue, then obviously that changes the one month time frame. And, and you know, I, I think the most interesting thing about what you said was, if you have somebody on a beta three, and you'd like the increased efficacy without the tolerability issues, you'd, you'd add a beta three, if you're on a beta three, and you'd reach your sort of maximum therapeutic dose, you might consider adding the anti-muscarinic. Do you ever start one go to combination, see a great response, and then back off of the original one? Oh, David, I mean, I think we've all done the, the jigsaw puzzle here. And I think the answer is absolutely, you'll, you know, and, and uh, we have groups of patients who aren't really interested in secondary intervention.
interventions or what we call refractory therapy, tertiary interventions. And so you really do try to become a magician with the medications and hope you find the sweet spot. The other interesting things is, especially with antimuscarinics, as we well know from chronic use, is that there are some patients who really become tolerant or toler they tolerate they become tolerant of the drug and you can't find the appropriate high enough dose uh, without causing side effect. And that really pushes you on then to discontinue antimuscarinics. Okay. There's a question here about treatment recommendations for elderly female, and it may or may not even be an elderly female. We can qualify that as we, if it's specific to our answer with bladder bacterial overcolonization, And so we can do asymptomatic bacteria in an elderly woman, or we could do someone with recurrent UTIs or positive cultures who has OAB symptomatology. So I'll go at it first. Now I'll, I'll let you, uh, I'll let you uh, sort of buff up my answer a little bit. I think my answer here is if someone has urgency and frequency and not necessarily incontinence from bacterial or uh, colonization, whether it's officially a UTI or not, I might treat them with a short course of antibiotic to see whether they respond. And I may or may not do a combination between an OAB drug and, and treat them with an antibiotic to see if I can get them under control. But I do not believe that asymptomatic bacteria necessarily causes OAB symptoms in the elderly and I think it's a very, very individual thing, the way I deal with it. Dave, I, I totally agree with what you said. I, it, and it can, can become quite complicated because so many of these patients actually are colonized. And the, and and pretty much we're all very inured now to avoid overtreatment with anti antimicrobials. And so I think we're all much more uh, circumspect about throwing antibiotics at these patients. But as you just described, a very delimited length of therapy um, with the possibility of extracting bacteria, more importantly, low-grade UTI. And I think from the standpoint of, of everyone listening to us today, bacteria does not equal urinary tract infection. Back, these are resident bacteria that are just commensal living there and not causing problems. And that's what we have to be very sensitized to, especially in the elderly population. And I will just uh, parenthetically state, I've just had a run of individuals referred to me with antibiotic-induced diarrhea, some of whom have had to have fecal transplants and, and have had ICU admissions because of uh, colonic uh, overgrowth of bad bugs. And so I, and related to overuse of antibiotics for urinary tract indication. So it's, it's a real issue, David. Okay, uh, we're gonna uh, wrap it up. Uh, I, I hope everybody got both the benefit of the didactics. And if you had a question, uh, they had an opportunity to have it answered here. It's really been our pleasure on behalf of uh, Dr. Demikowski and myself, David Staskin. I'd like to thank you all for joining. We look forward to perhaps doing another one of these and uh, answering more questions and giving you a little, a little bit more information. So thank you. Thank you for joining our live broadcast, focusing on evidence-based best practices in the management and treatment of OAD. You'll receive an email shortly with more information about how to complete your post-test, evaluation, and claim your free CME credit. Thank you for your participation, and we hope you have a great night.